I was thinking back uh, this week on a couple movies uh, that I liked a lot as a kid. And uh, what I was thinking about is kind of the difference of the way I think about them now than what I liked about it when I was a kid. And the two movies I was thinking of, one was the movie Hoosiers. If you've ever seen the movie Hoosiers, it came out like 25 years ago. So I'm totally dating myself now on these movies that I liked a lot. But uh, Hoosiers was a movie about a basketball coach that moved to a small town and they were kind of a stinky team and they weren't that great. And he totally turns them around and they go on to win uh, the state championship. And so I always loved that movie. Uh, Gene Hackman was the coach and he's the the wise older guy that comes in and changes everything up. And, and uh, so there was Hoosiers that I always loved that movie. And then the other one was uh, The Karate Kid. And uh, if you remember The Karate Kid, yes, uh, it was uh, a guy, uh, a young man that moves to a new town and he's kind of getting bullied and picked on. And so he decides he's going to learn karate and he goes to the older uh, Mr. Miyagi who teaches him karate and then he can stand up for himself and then he becomes the karate champion. Right. So I just totally ruined those movies for you. Spoiler alert. <laughs> but it's been like 30 years. So if you haven't seen them, that's on you. Like well, they've been out for a while. But Karate Kid and Hoosiers both, as I was thinking about those movies and maybe it's having children, maybe it's being a pastor, maybe it's just where I am in life. And now when I think about those movies, there were two things that jumped out or, or one thing that jumped out in both movies to me. In both of those movies, there's this crisis uh, with the basketball team with Gene Hackman and Hoosiers. And with Daniel, the, the young boy that's learning karate and the karate kid, that both at some point in the movie, they come to this place where their teacher is teaching them and they're like, I don't get it. Right. Like in Hoosiers, he comes in as the basketball coach and he says, we don't need any balls. Put the balls up. We're going to do defensive drills and slides and everybody's ready to quit. And they think he's lost it and he doesn't know what he's doing. Uh, in Karate Kid, it's he has him do all these chores. He teaches him to paint and to wax Wax on, wax off, like if you know the movie, right? He teaches them to wax his car and do all this. And he's teaching them things, but in the moment, they don't get it at all. The basketball team doesn't get it, and they're ready to revolt, and they want to do away with him as coach. Uh, there comes this scene in Karate Kid where he's kind of like, what are we doing here? I'm just your slave. And then he starts to unfold for him. And what you see is, is this picture of discipline and obedience in those movies. Even when we don't understand... And even though when we can't see the whole picture, obedience is really just bending your will to that of another, putting yourself under another person, allowing them to speak truth into your life and be over you. And you see that in both those movies. It takes a point where both of them get to a place where it's like, I don't get this, but they continue to obey. And throughout the movie, obviously, it works out and they understand. And so I was thinking about that today as we think about what John says in first John chapter two. When he says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And I say this often, if you've been around our church, sin is ignoring or rebelling against God in the world he created. That is that we're disobeying what he has told us, what he has revealed to us about who he is. And that's what sin is. And so really what John is saying is I'm writing these things that you would obey what God has told you to. And very much I see this as what he's talking about is coming back to this idea of obedience. And really, this is a sermon in a lot of ways about what does it mean to obey and obedience. And I know when I say that, you might go, great sermon on obedience. It's something that we often don't like to think about or talk about, but it's part of that's our culture. But it's an important part of our discipleship. And we say this often here, if you've been at Church of the Apostles, our whole goal is to make disciples who make disciples. And the way we define that is growing in obedience to Jesus in every area of your life. 
that we're taking what God has told us and what he's revealed to us. And we're seeking to live that out in our life. And I think what John has just said in the first chapter is when we do, we walk in the light and we have fellowship with the father that we're created for. And our fullness of joy is found in that. And so if you start to hear as we talk about obedience and this idea and you kind of go, Ugh, just let me remind you. The very mission of the church is to make disciples that make disciples. And the way Jesus defines that, uh, I've had people ask me, why do you use that definition? I've actually heard people say that to me. I don't really like that. Why do you have to say obedience? Well, there's this thing called the Great Commission. It's the mission that Jesus gives us. It's his last words before he ascends, right? Go make disciples of all nations. Uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. And then he says, teaching them to obey all that I commanded. We didn't make that up. We got that directly from Jesus' words and what he calls us to. To live out of obedience to him and the way he's revealed himself and who he is. And there's this wonderful and glorious promise that the fullness of life is found in that relationship, walking in the light, which is exactly what John's saying here. And so this morning, I want us to think about what does it look like to grow in obedience? And he's going to tell us a couple things that I think are very practically helpful in helping us to grow in obedience to Jesus in every area of our life. But I also want us to consider what happens when we get off track. What happens when we stumble, when we fail, when sin comes in our life? And he's going to tell us something really important here. That also leads to our growth and our obedience if we put it in the proper framework of what he's saying. So I want us to think about how we grow in obedience, but then how we get back on track and how God uses that even when we fail. And then lastly, what is the goal of all of this? Why is this so important that we talk about this? Why would Jesus say, go make disciples and teach them to obey all that I commanded? And so let's think about that together. First John chapter two and verse one. And so. I'm going to start there. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation of our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so he starts right off the bat with this, this description of who Jesus is and what he's done. He says, I'm writing that you would not sin, but if you do, this is who Jesus is. This is what God is like. And he talks about Jesus being Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is our advocate. He is the propitiation of our sins. And what he is saying here in very deep theological meaning, he says a whole lot in those two verses, but he is pointing you to God's great love for you and the way he has shown that in Jesus. And so when we start to think about obedience, let me use that definition of bending your will to another. It becomes very, very important that you know how that other person loves you and how you love them when we start to bend our will to another. And so John starts with this beautiful picture of God's great love for us and what he's done for us in Jesus. He goes right to our affections about the reality of who God is and what he's done. I am willing to bend my will for those that I love. I want you to think about that for just a second. There's days when uh, I get home and I come in and I sit down on the couch and I left the house very early in the morning and I'm really tired and Quinn or, or Jed or Asher or one of my boys will come running in and they'll say, hey, can we go outside and shoot baskets? And in my mind, I'm going, I really don't want to shoot baskets right now. 
Right. A lot of times I'm like, I just want to sit on this couch right here and do nothing. And sometimes I do. If I'm honest, they would tell you there's sometimes I'm not going to do that. But a lot of times I go, yes, let's go do that. And it's because I love my children and I want to spend time with them and I want to grow in my relation with them. And so I will bend my will to theirs because I love them. And so I think what John is doing, at least partly what he's doing as he starts here, is he's pointing to God's great love for us in Jesus. He says, I'm writing you these things that you wouldn't sin, that you would obey. But if you do sin, let me remind you of who we're talking about. And he says that Jesus Christ, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And he says a mouthful in that. And I'm just going to warn you, for the next couple of minutes, we're wading into very deep theological waters. And sometimes when we get there, we go, uh, theology, doctrine gets kind of heavy. But please hear me when we say this, as we go into this. This is foundational to who God is and the way he loves you. It is not some dry doctrine that you just memorize so that you know what the doctrine is. It shows us the very heart of God and the way he loves us. And so when it says that Jesus is our advocate with the father, he is the Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he is the propitiation of our sins. When he talks about Jesus Christ being the righteous. He's pointing to that Jesus has come and he stepped into this world. He's taken on flesh. The God of the universe humbles himself to come and live among us and serve us. And in doing so, he does everything perfect, perfectly. That word righteous means to keep all of God's laws, to do it perfect and in every way. And he says, Jesus Christ came to do what we couldn't do for us. And he lives perfectly in every way and in all things. He obeys God. He loves God and he loves man and he does those things in perfect harmony. And he loves us in this way. Jesus Christ, the righteous, who's done for us what we could never do for ourselves. But then he says he is the propitiation of our sins. Now, that word propitiation is a great big theological word in the Bible. It's a word that we don't use today. You don't hear people in normal conversation outside of maybe talking about things that Scripture says We don't talk about propitiation in the Bible. We don't normally say that, except when we talk about the Bible. But propitiation means to satisfy or appease wrath. Now, wrath is another word, right? So we're kind of following this down. So stay with me on all of this, right? Wrath is holy, righteous anger against all things that are not good, against sin, And so God is angry at sin in this because he is perfect love. He's perfect justice. If God is not angry at things that are not good for you, he would cease to be God. He would now be apathetic. He wouldn't be perfectly good in every way. And so God has a holy, righteous anger, his wrath against all sin. And so what John is saying is that Jesus has come and he's lived the life that we haven't lived and he's done it perfectly. And then he becomes the propitiation of our sins. He becomes the sacrifice that turns God's wrath and takes it from uh, being wrathful towards us to adopting us as his beloved children. And the way that happens is what uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians. For he, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin on our behalf that we could become the righteousness of God in him. 
So God allows Jesus Christ, the righteous, who has done everything perfectly, that deserves all the blessings with come with keeping all of God's laws. And he allows him to become the curse. He allows him to take on the sin of all those that would put their faith in him. And he pays for it. And he takes us from being uh, God's wrath standing against us as children of wrath to beloved children of God because of what Jesus has done. And he pays for it for us. And that's what he means when he says Jesus Christ, the righteous, the righteous, who is the propitiation of our sins, that God loves you so much that he comes to deal with your sin. Us and our sins separates us from the fellowship that John's saying you were created for in chapter one. But he says, but Jesus has come to deal with that. He has come to take your sin upon himself. And so God can destroy the products of, of sin and death as Jesus takes it on himself without destroying us and then welcome us into his family. And so what John is saying is, do you see how much God loves you? That he's come to do for you what you could never do for yourself. That I love you this much. And not only that, he says all of that, and you add to it that he says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Not only does he save you, not only does he take your sin upon himself, not only does he pay for that, but then he stands at the right hand of the Father that when you do sin, that he is your advocate. Do you know what that means? That when you blow it, he goes, he is mine and I have paid for all of it and you can rest. I am going to finish what I started and I'm not going to give up and I'm not going to fit. I'm going to continue to do that. That he is not just Jesus Christ, the righteous, who's the propitiation for your sins, but he's also your advocate. Your past, your present and your future are all safe because of what Jesus has done. And so when he says, dear children, I'm writing these things that you wouldn't sin. And then he starts with this incredible picture of the way God loves us. That our affections would be stirred. He's not asking you to coldly just do what I say. He's saying, I have proven to you how much I love you. You follow me because I want your best. This is where the fullness of joy would be found, was what John says in chapter one. And so the first thing that he says here is that we would see God's great love for us when we think about obedience. Look at verse three. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly, the love of God is perfected by this, that we may know that we are in him. And so the second part I want you to consider is just the humility of coming before God. Think of everything that John has said up to this point in this book. He says, Jesus, uh, we've seen him. We've touched him. What we've heard, I'm, I'm relaying to you the eternal word of life. The one that has always existed has been come and has been made manifest to us. And he calls us into this obedience to follow him. And he says, and if you don't, if you throw off the things he tells you, that there's a supreme arrogance that you know better than God does. He says, you don't really know who God is if you're responding in that way. And so I want you to think about that. 
so often we say, yeah, 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 I know that. Right? The, the Bible tells us we need to spend time in prayer, talking to the Father in all things. And we go, yeah, 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 I know that. And so I ask people, well, how's your prayer life? Well, I don't really have time. Or we say, you're called to abide in the word and my word in you and you will bear much fruit. Jesus says that in John 15. And people go, man, I'm really struggling. They go, well, how's your time in the word? I don't really have time for that. Now, we wouldn't say, I don't think, if we went around the room and you profess to be a Christian, I don't think anyone here would say, I know better than God does. I don't think. Maybe you would. But I don't think we'd say, yeah, 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 I know more than God does. I've got this. But yet that is how we so often respond to him in the moment. I started with the beginning with uh, Hoosiers and Karate Kid and those, those silly movies. But what was at the heart of those movies is those characters would take themselves and they would submit their will to the one that's teaching them. And so God calls us into this relationship with him and he calls us to submit our will to what he's telling us. But so often we don't do that. We we function in unbelief. I'm not saying you're not a believer, but in those moments, we're functioning in unbelief. And often it's tied to an arrogance that I know better. I see what God tells me, but then I don't do it. I ignore what he's told me. And so obedience is submitting your will to the father. And it's not that he's asking you to blindly do this. Everything that we just said that John says about him being our advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins. He has proven to you and his great love for you and what he's done for you that he can be trusted. And he's saying, trust me on these things. Submit yourself to the things that I've told you. And so put your will under his will. So often we struggle with that. Uh, Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton said that Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. How often we go, yeah, 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 that's what the Bible says. And then we don't submit ourselves to what God has told us. And so there's a humbling of God, you know, better than I am. And even when I don't feel like it, I'm going to submit to the things that you tell me. And so we begin to submit to those. And John's calling us to obey. And I want you to hear that warning, though, that he says. He says, if you say you know him, but you do not keep his commandments, you are a liar and the truth is not in you. It's a warning that's through scripture. You are not saved by your works. You are saved by what Jesus, who is Jesus Christ, the righteous does for you. But when you see what he's done, it changes your life. And you begin to make steps in obedience. And that's what discipleship looks like. And it happens over time. But if there is no fruit or evidence that you love him and you are following him, the Bible says you should examine your heart because you may not be a believer. Your works don't save you, but your works are evidence that you know who Jesus is and what he's done. But then the third thing here, look at what he says next. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And so this picture here that when we are in him, we are united with Christ. Do you see that in verse five? But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected by this, that we may know that we are in him. 
When you come to faith in Jesus and you put your faith and you see that it is his righteousness, not yours. It is by grace through faith and what Christ has done. You are now a new creation and the spirit comes and lives with you and inside you and illuminates your hearts and your minds and continues to do this work in and through you. And you are a new creation. You are now united with Christ in all things. And so hear God's word about who you are. It is very powerful to understand who you are in Christ and the way that you then live. When we see that living in step with who God is makes perfect sense. It's where our greatest joy is found because we are now united with him and it's the way we are created. And so hear what Paul says in Romans chapter six. Do you not now do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father, we too might walk in a newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. Do you hear what he's saying? You are a new creation. And you walk in a newness of life because of what God's done for you as the Holy Spirit is working in your life. And John's saying here that when you start to truly love the, the love of God is in you and you are obeying and you are walking in these things, that there is a unity with Jesus that is palpable. And you start to see it in all things. You are now walking out of your identity of who you are in Jesus. And you now get to live that way. And there's a great joy because you are aligning with the way you are made. And that's why it talks about walking in the light and not the darkness and coming into those things. And so seeing God's great love for us, humbling ourselves and getting our identity from Christ begin to help us walk in obedience. But then what happens when we fail? What happens when we stumble? What happens when we sin or we go back to old patterns Go back to what he says there in chapter two, verse one. I am writing these things that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. He says, when you go back into sin, when you stumble, you go back to old habits and old ways and you fall into those things. John says, when you sin is very real in his understanding of who we are. We are a new creation that walks in this newness of life, but we're still in these bodies of flesh and we struggle with old habits and the things of this world and the darkness that is there. And he says, when that happens, you confess your sins and he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. Remember, we added chapter and verse. This is the same thought right before this. He will cleanse you from all unrighteousness because Jesus is your righteousness. He is the one that's done it. And I want you to see how this pertains to you growing in obedience. When you confess your sin and you see Jesus's righteousness before you and you see it's his righteousness, not your righteousness. It's what he's done, not what you have done. When you see that and you experience that in the midst of your sin and you come out and you confess and you now walk in the light, it alerts you to your sinfulness 
but it also more fully alerts you to God's glory and his grace and how much he loves you. And you begin to experience his love all that much more. And it starts to magnify the glory of his grace. And so sometimes when we sin or we struggle within the church, we get it wrong. It always has to be rooted and grounded in the gospel, because sometimes what happens is you fail and you go, I stink. I'm not good at this. I'm not a good Christian. I need to work harder. I need to do more. I need to stop that. I need, and you make it all about you. And it becomes this moralistic, this is the way I fix this. But when you do that, you're placing your faith in you and your performance rather than what Jesus has done. And John says, no, 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 you look to Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is your advocate. And in doing so, it, it shows you greater God's love for you. The same is true when we say uh, you sin and you fall and you go, that's OK. God loves me. Sometimes people say that. Well, God just loves you just the way you are. It's like, no, Jesus purchased you. He dealt with your sin. He's made you into a new creation. He's going to bring it to completion. He loves you too much to leave you right where you are. So he's your advocate. Who stands at the right hand of the Father and continues to work in your life to show you your sin and root those things out in your life that you would see him. And you start to grow in your appreciation and your love for him. And so even when we sin, Jesus is pursuing us, showing us greatly what he's doing and for why that he would bring us into this fullness of relationship with him. But the very last part, and that leads us to the last part, you obey when you sin, you turn and confess your sin and see more fully Jesus. And it's not so we can have a church full of people that all clean up nicely and are doing the right things and we all look great. It's not little children. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So you will reflect good on me. John's saying that your joy would may be full, that you would have the fellowship that you were created for. See, in everything he's saying and he's calling us to this obedience that is born out of a great love for God and experiencing his love for you and seeing it in that way leads you to a deepening relationship with the God of the universe. That he loves you so much that he would continue to show you these things and point you back to what he's done for you, that it's his righteousness, not yours, that he would love you through all of that. And it helps us to grow in our relationship and our love for God. And that's what he says here. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected by this, that we may know that we are in him. It's about this relationship with the living God of the universe. And so I'm going to end here with this. I meet a lot of people that are believers. And we talk about different things, but every once in a while. I meet someone as we talk about Jesus and what he means to us. It's not just about theology or doctrine or these different things, but it's like, do you know Jesus? When I first started here, I went around the corner to see Marilyn Mason. Marilyn passed away years ago. She was an elderly lady in this church and she lived right around the corner. And I went and I sat in her house and she told me her testimony and how she became a believer. And in her face, this frail little old lady was like telling me how much she loved Jesus and what he meant to her and what he had been in her life. And then she turned and she said to me, she said, JP, tell me about when you met the beloved. 
And I knew exactly what she meant. It's not a doctrine. It's not something that we just hold to these things. It's that we have a relationship with the living God of the universe. And it's all because of what he's done for us. And that's it. And so we talk about obedience. It's not obedience for obedience sake. It's obedience that we would see and know and love Jesus all the more. It's a glorious picture of who he is and what he's done for us. And so as you're reading through this book and we work through first John, remember that that's what John's saying over and over. I'm telling you these things that you would know Jesus and you would know him more fully. So let's pray. God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel. I thank you that you love us. Even in our sin and our shame, our guilt, our struggles, that you are our righteousness, that you've come to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And you remind us and you love us and you keep us in the midst of that. I pray that you would continue to teach us and show us that you would draw us into a deepening relationship with you that looks like full surrender. That we would seek to obey and love you and follow you in all things. Even in those times when it doesn't make sense to us. That we would seek to follow you, to surrender. And it would be all about your glory and your name. We pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.